First Kings, Second Kings, excuse me, chapter eighteen. Um, and let's stand and we'll read. Uh, I got it written down here. Let's read first of all the first eight verses, and let's. This is of course introducing Hezekiah. And uh, basically what we're going to see here is that he is a the, the most godly king since David, in a sense, the way it's recorded for us. And he has a lot of reforms. And then uh, the, the Assyrians, uh, in about the fourth year of his reign, that's when we saw last week where they came in and they uh, took Israel, the northern kingdoms, captive and carried them into captivity and, and mixed the people and so forth. And... When they got done doing that, they said, well, let's go down and get Judah, right? And so that's what the second half of this chapter will be about. So that's kind of what we're seeing here. Let's first of all read the first eight uh, verses of chapter 18. In the third year of Hoshea, son of Eli, the king of Israel, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother name was Abby, so there I was saying that that's Abby's gets her uh, that's a biblical name, Abi. Just, just realize that this week, uh, the daughter of Zechariah, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David his father had done. And so that is uh, a, a little bit different. You don't hear about kings being as David. They're, because usually you hear they weren't quite up to David's caliber. Hezekiah was. He removed the high places and broke the pillars down of the Astra. He broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called the Shutan, which uh, basically means the bronze thing. And he trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept, whoops, lost my place here, excuse me, but kept the commandments of the Lord, commanded Moses. Okay, that's let me read it. I knew I left something out. But kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him. Wherever he went out, he prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. He struck down the Philistines as far as Gaza and its uh, territory from Watchtower to Fortified City. Now, when you read this, the account in Second Chronicles, uh, it, it spends almost three chapters talking about all the reforms that Hezekiah did. He, they, they were very extensive, and, and so the uh, Second Kings doesn't quite go into all that. What is kind of missing is that, well, let's just let's just start reading here. Uh, that what happened was that Hezekiah uh, decided, rightly so, that he's no longer going to send tribute to the king of Assyria. Stops it, and of course, Assyria. The, he comes down. The king of Assyria, Sennacherib, comes in to uh, uh, take over Jerusalem. And uh, then Hezekiah, who was not perfect, and there's a couple of things we'll see in our, as we study him that that were pretty blatant. But here's one of them. He says, "Okay, I you know kind of made a mistake," and he takes all the treasures of the temple and gives it to the king, to king the king of Assyria, when he comes up against them. So instead of trusting the Lord as he's been doing, as he did to start with, by stopping giving giving him tribute, all of a sudden now he's 
kind of done a double take. He was backslidden a little bit. And uh, so the problem is that the king of Assyria uh, doesn't care. He, he takes that, but he is not going to stop there. And so that's kind of where we find ourselves in this latter part of Second Kings. And again, I would encourage you to go to Second Chronicles and read the account there because there's a lot of details given that we won't get in Second Kings. But let's start reading in verse 13. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Jerusalem and took them. And Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish and saying, I have done wrong, withdraw from me, whatever you impose upon me I will bear. And the king of Assyria required of Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. And Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house. All the, at that time, Hezekiah stripped the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the doorposts that Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. So he had spent years remodeling and building the temple back to where it should be and then get this tears it all down and gives it to the king. Verse 17, And the king of Assyria sent the Tartan, Rabsaris, the, uh, and the Rabshakeh with a great army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. And they went up and came to Jerusalem. When they arrived, they came and stood by the conduit of the upper pool, which is on the highway to the washer's field. And when they called for the king, there came out from out to them El- Elakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shibna, the secretary, and Jonah, the son of Ashsaph, the recorder. And Rebshakah said to them, uh, Say to Hezekiah, so three kind of dignitaries came out and rep- to represent Hezekiah and to hear what Rebshakah has to say. And he says to Hezekiah, Say to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, On what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are in strategy and power for war? In whom do you trust now that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you are trusting now in Egypt, which he had called for Egypt at one point, the broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the hands of any man who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. But if you say to me, we will trust in the Lord your God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed? Say unto Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem. So Hezekiah, of course, had removed all the high places, and so Rabshakeh, not really understanding what's going on, thinks he has removed the altars to Yahweh, not realizing, of course, that that was idolatry, but of course they worship Yahweh in some cases, from those high places. So he just had no idea what he's talking about. So he thinks Hezekiah has offended uh, Yahweh. Come now, make a wager with me, verse 23, with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you are able on your part to set riders on them. <clears throat> How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Moreover, it is without the Lord that I have come up against this place to destroy it. The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. So here he lies by saying that uh, the Lord has told me, Yahweh has told me to uh, come up against you, which we'll talk about that later on, but that's, of course, a lie. Then uh, verse 26, 
Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah and Shebnevs and Joah, said to Rabshakeh, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. Do not speak in the language of Judah within the hearing of the people who are on the wall. Of course, that was, uh, you know, a porch. That wasn't going to work. But Rabshakeh said to them, Has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you, and not to the men sitting on the wall? who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and to drink their own urine. Of course, that would happen in a siege. Then Rabshakeh stood and called out with a loud voice in the language of Judah, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for you will not be able to deliver you out of my hand. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, the Lord will deliver us, and the city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, Make your peace with me, and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat his own vine, of his own vine, each one of his own fig tree, and each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern, until I come and take you away to a land like your land, a land of grain and wine, and a land of bread and vineyards, and a land of olive trees and honey, that you may live and not die. And do not listen to Hezekiah <clears throat> when he misleads you by saying the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations ever delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Severim and Hina and Ava? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hands? Who among all the gods of the land have delivered their lands out of my hand? That the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand. But the people were silent and answered not a word for the king's command. The king had commanded, do not answer him. We'll stop there today. So you see, it's just an extremely interesting uh, account there that we want to kind of see that this is often how the Lord's enemies and Satan in particular try to tempt us to do wrong. So I think we'll see a parallel there. Um, let me though... Just finish up something from chapter 17. Didn't quite get there. Remember, we were talking about the Samaritans and how, uh, what as a, the king took some from other some of the Jews out of Samaria and brought other nations in and mixed the people up. That that's the beginning of the Samaritans and uh, so forth. And I just wanted to make a, another comment about the this whole account here in chapter 17. The chapter ends by showing us how the Samaritans got their start, but because they were half-breeds, as we talked about, really five different, five or six different nations uh, mixed together, I think we could say that God expects more of them because they they knew uh, the, the true God, they they knew what the worship was to be. And in fact, remember the king of Assyria let them bring in a a priest to help them. Uh, Worship Yahweh properly, so the lions would leave them alone. Of course, that, that priest was uh, a false prophet to, to begin with, really. So he didn't help things and just led to more idolatry. Um, but they knew that they uh, and, and the Jews are seeing them not only as a mixed race, but also now in idolatry. The, the Jews just began to see them as dogs. They, they could call, call them dogs. They were considered to be unclean. Uh, in G- by Jesus' day, um, when there uh, there were Jews up in Gentile or up in the uh, Galilee region, 
if a Jew from Jerusalem and Judah wanted to go visit them, they wouldn't even walk through Samaria often. They, they would walk around. They would go around the other side of, of the Jordan River and go around that way. That's just how they detested the Samaritans at that point. And, and I think the lesson there is that they despise, and rightly so, the idolatry of the Samaritans. But the problem is that the effect that it had on them was to despise the idolaters as well. And now you've got a problem, because instead of sending missionaries to them to help them get back to worshiping the Yahweh as he was supposed to be, they just ignored them entirely, because they were lifted up in pride. And I thought, there's something that happened a few years ago when I was in New York that I kind of illustrates the point. Uh, there, uh, in Rochester, New York, uh, there was, uh, but long before all the problems we're having now, uh, the gay pride, gay, gay pride, uh, parades. And the, uh, the church that we fellowshiped with, uh, up there, um, there was a man called Ed who spoke for me sometimes, filled in the pulpit for me now and then, good friend of mine. He and some of the other guys would, during this gay pride parade, go and they would just try to share the gospel with the people up there. And, and he told me that, that they would go up there and there would be the fundamentalists would be there. But all they're doing is carrying signs, basically saying that you're all going to hell. And that was as far as they ever got. And, and, and so one day he, t- he was talking to one of them, and he, and he said, well, why don't you guys ever share the gospel with these people? You're just kind of being hateful, but you're not, what are you doing? And he says, well, I'll share the gospel with them with when they quit sinning. Which is kind of a typical, unfortunately, kind of fundamentalist attitude often. And, uh, so, you know, and I thought, well, that's kind of the, what's, what's, what's happening by Jesus' day. They weren't interested in telling them the true God, because I think a lot of the Jews in Jesus' day didn't know the true God. Um, but, um, we ought to be careful that we don't, we forget, because what was one of the things God says, the reason you're going off into captivity is that I delivered you from Egypt and you were ungrateful. You've forgotten all that. And when you forget the kind of sinner that you are and that God had to show the same grace to you that he did uh, anybody else, then uh, you're no more deserving of it than anybody else. When you forget all that, you become uh, self-righteous and you start to look down on people as if they're worse sinners than you. And so, uh, to me, this is kind of a a passage that reminds us that we need to be careful about that. Um. So that, that person that Ed had talked to had forgotten where the Lord had found him. Um, but Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.11, Having, knowing therefore the fear of God, we persuade men. Having understood that what, what drove us to the gospel was understanding that the, that the God will judge sinners, that should bring about a, a burden that we would carry to other people and not be afraid to tell other people. And that man had forgotten the kind of sinner that he was. And so we want to make sure that we don't um, follow into that same kind of attitude. And if you see that in yourself, it's something that we want to repent of. Because that's certainly not uh, how a Christian who's been touched by the grace of God should uh, act. All right, so that brings us into Second Kings chapter 18. Um, it's interesting that these, uh, I just want to make a few, a few more comments also, uh, for maybe from, uh, chapter 17. These 
the settlers there in the uh, northern area above Judah seems to make more sense of the lions that God had sent than the uh, Israelites had th- themselves. And they take it upon themselves to inquire how to ap- appease him because of these lions. And uh, the, the, again, the, the, the problem is they, they get a corrupt priest to teach them uh, what, how to worship God. And uh, that doesn't do any good. Uh, you see that down in verse 40 of chapter 17. However, they did not would not listen, but did according to their former manner. And, uh, and, and again, there's, a, there's another lesson there that I think we see, and that is that they really weren't interested in worshiping God. They didn't like those lions. And so they were figuring out, hey, how can we get the lions off our back and yet not have to really worship God as we as he demands it. And so they had tried to make a compromise. Well, we've got this temple that we're building in Mount Gerizim that will uh, will be worshiping God. And, and as we read, remember last week, it says that they feared God, but then he turns right around and says, but they didn't fear God, because you can't worship God part-time. Uh, in other words, religion to them was very pragmatic. And one of the problems that many people have is that the sole concern um, is not with God, not with his word, but does this religion help me? Does it do me any good? Does it, does it meet my needs? Does it solve my problems that I've got? You know, And that's what we call felt needs. Is that I, I want to worship the Lord if I can get some kind of benefit out of it, but the, the person of, of Christ and and, and his glory is not the driving motivation. And, of course, that's also the attitude of someone who hasn't felt the grace of God. It's like we were saying earlier. But we need to approach the Bible not looking for some easy fix to a problem that we might be having, but with a desire to know who God is and to worship him. And that's the problem that, they did, that, that, that these people had. And when we come to make our lives all about worshiping Him, we're going to get the answers that we need. We'll be able to understand how, uh, how to understand the Bible in that light. So, as I said, you had to read uh, this account sarcastically to understand it, because when it says that they, they feared the Lord, it makes it very clear that they really weren't fearing the Lord. It's, you cannot worship God along with other gods. As we read in the New Testament, you cannot uh, serve God and mammon, God and money, God and anything else. God isn't here to serve us. First of all, we're here to serve him. And so a religion that it is what you make it is not acceptable to God. Uh, there was a woman... Uh, I think it's actually Charles Colson told this story that uh, there was a woman that he was talking to one day who was all excited about this church she was going to, and he he tried to tell her as nicely as he could that that church is really just a cult. They don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe in the deity of Christ. And she really just blew all that off because she says, I lead the services feeling good. That's all that really mattered to her. You see, that's all, that's all these Samaritans were looking for, is we want these lions off our back, 
Uh, we can care less about God other than that he take care of what we want. And so what is true takes second place to what I enjoy. And so pagan religions create what it likes. A biblical faith receives what is revealed. Pagan religions, and by that I mean false religions, um, creates what pleases me. The true biblical faith receives what is revealed, and we conform ourselves to that. Pagans worship based on what they prefer. Biblical worship is based on what God declares. We submit pagans concoct. We receive, we receive revealed truth. We don't make it up as we go. And, and again, when you start, that's, it's not that difficult usually to spot this in, in, in false groups out there. You begin to see that in uh, the way they approach the Word of God and the Lord Himself. And so in chapter 18, um, we see that the last couple hundred years of Judah isn't without its bright spots. Um, and Hezekiah is certainly a breath of fresh air compared to what we've seen here recently with Ahaz. Um, it's, it's been a long time since we've seen a king that comes that attains David's standards. It, um, he, in fact, he's the only king that that's said about, I believe I already said that, um, he, uh, some of the things that we, are, we don't really read about in Second Kings, but Second Chronicles talks about, is that he brought revival to the land. He uh, held priests accountable for what they were doing and, and their uh, obeying the Lord of sacrifices and temple worship. Um, he repaired the temple. He brought. Uh, he made it so that the sacrifices were brought back, the music and the singing and worship, kind of getting things back to how it was. When Solomon built the temple to begin with, he even sent messengers to the northern tribes because remember there was still four years or so before they that they were uh, fell, inviting them to come down to the south so that they could worship God properly, and and some did that, and uh, so and and so he. Uh, It was obvious that we might easily overlook the fact that he still had to fight the same battles and face the same problems, even though he's doing everything right and God greatly blessed him and the land was strong, the land was fruitful, there was peace. Uh, there was a, a verse that I have coming here somewhere. And I, I didn't do our uh, review here. Let me just... I think we kind of talked about this, but let me mention that first one. Uh, last week we also saw that the Bible makes it crystal clear that the fall of Jerusalem had nothing to do with the bigger army, right? Everything to do with the will of God and Israel's failure to keep covenant. We'll see this again with Hezekiah, won't we? When this massive Assyrian army comes up, and uh, as we'll see next week, they are delivered. Uh, Israel wins, but it's not because of them, it's because of the Lord's will. Not because of Israel's strength, right? Um, but uh, yeah, I wanted to read this. <clears throat> this is one of the things we'll get to in a minute, but what was going on in under Hezekiah's reign, there was great joy in Jerusalem, for since the time of Solomon, the son of David, the king of Israel, there had been nothing like this in Jerusalem. 
So things were good. And Hezekiah was godly. But that doesn't mean that he gets a free ride and that every, that uh, things don't, uh, he doesn't have to suffer some trials. And that's what we're seeing here too because uh, the, the Lord's enemies still come up against him. And it's always something we've got to remember that just because we're, we're doing our best for the Lord doesn't mean that uh, life is going to be easy and we're not going to have any problems, which is, I think, one of the... Uh, one thing that lets us know when there's a false prophet is somebody who tells you that if you have enough faith, why well, you will be saved from such problems. Um, we read about this bronze servant that uh, they had been had been had saved all these years, all these generations, and had come to worship it. And it kind of makes you think about the crucifix that we have today. That you know you have people who just aren't content with meditating on truth, they have to have that object, right? And I think it was in about 800 A.D., if someone can correct me, when they had the second Council of Nicaea, where they, the church at that time okayed icons. That was one of the things that they did, I believe. It was okay. And it wasn't really until the Reformation that that was, again, called evil, although there were always Baptistic people, groups, you know, throughout the medieval uh, times that understood that to be wrong, icons and stuff like that. So nothing's changed. You know, they're just doing, uh, when, when, when you got a church full of unsaved people preaching the truth, this isn't enough. And so you got this big image back here with Christ on the cross, the crucifix, and now that's something that we can, we can uh, worship as an object. It is that, uh, that, that tendency towards idolatry that uh, all men have. So that's what's going on there. So what does Hezekiah do? He says, he just destroys the whole thing. And you think, no, I guess there's nothing wrong with him saving that. And it was a, a great chapter in Israel's history in a sense and, and a, a great reminder of God's grace. Uh, but if you're going to worship it, then destroy it. It's not worth it. It doesn't matter. And I think just a great way to we have to look at our own traditions and what we do and never get so uh, caught up in tradition and things that we're not willing to cut them off if we realize that these things have become an idol. These things are not doing what they were designed to do. And so in verse 13, we come to this dilemma. It appears that Hezekiah has compromised. Um, and like like many before him, and he agrees to pay tribute. And again, it's amazing because things are going along so well, and all of a sudden, you know, Assyria has t- this takes over the northern kingdoms, and Hezekiah begins to worry, and he uh, starts paying tribute. And um, now he does eventually, you know, get over it, uh, but. You know, that's what compromise does to, to build up that temple and all the th- way God is blessed and then just to hand it over to the enemy is, is, it's, it's hard to read sometimes, but yet we know that we all are very capable of doing the very same thing. We, we learn, we go to church, we learn the Bible and we, we are, we, we praise God for the way He takes care of us and uh, delivers us in so many ways, and then all of a sudden something comes upon us, maybe something we weren't quite ready for, and we just complete, 
capitulate entirely. So let's not point the finger. Let's just ask God to help us to never do that. I was reading about a, a Chinese preacher who was in prison for his faith and, and was strong in the Lord, and he gets word that his wife is failing, her health is failing. And he said, so he agrees to sign whatever the Chinese tell him to do, kind of renounce the Lord, because he wants to get out there and be with his wife. And he gets out there, and of course, then all of a sudden you got to lose yourself, right? And so they say that he would be he would be walking down the street, muttering that he's a Peter and he's a Judas because he's betrayed the Lord. And eventually, him and his wife go to the Chinese authority and say, "We were wrong to do that, and we take it all back." And they put him back in prison. And so, you know, it happens. In fact, you know, to be honest with you, when I was when I read that, it, it kind of shook me a little bit because. It, there's a Chinese preacher who who fell a little bit. He 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 gave in to to fear, and, and we're all capable of doing it. Hezekiah gives in, and I'm no better. I'm no stronger than anybody else. And so we need to, that's why I pray for our church family that daily we will be strong in the faith, that we won't succumb to temptation, that we'll be strong, and that we'll glorify the Lord because. We're all in this together, and, and we and, and none of us are above falling in, in compromise. And so, you know, Hezekiah is an example of that. David, of course, was no better too. He, he had some huge faults, and yet we, the, the grace of God is that He upholds him as, as a faithful uh, lover of the Lord, one after God's own heart. So he initially succumbs. He, he pays a tribute, but at some point, the Arabjack that makes it clear we're not really interested. We want we, we want to take over the city anyway, and so uh, he Hezekiah bribes, but it, it doesn't do any good, and that just shows you how foolish it is to compromise biblical convictions, because whatever we're in love with or whatever we're afraid of. To the point that we'll compromise. They don't love us. That it won't satisfy us, and so we do that. But it never is worth it. And as you get older, you know, you go through these things, and you you, you realize it more and more that the things that you really struggled with never really satisfied you anyway. And they dishonor the Lord. As you read in Second Chronicles, you actually find out that the account is. A little bit more favorable. It doesn't mention Hezekiah's uh, compromise there. Uh, it focuses more on his reforms and how all the covenantal obedience was restored. That um, people come from the northern tribes down and, and uh, stay in, in the south and so forth. And it seems it kind of assumes that Hezekiah is ready to withstand the enemy because we don't read about the compromise. All we read about is that, the, that for some reason the Assyrians come down and Hezekiah uh, is strong against them. Because that's, that's, that's what Second Chronicles is concerned about. So as we have these verses here, we kind of see an idea of how it's relating this to us. We saw the joy of, of, that was in the country. Uh, chapter 29, verse 5. And, and said to them, Hear me, Levites, now consecrate yourselves and consecrate the house of the Lord, the God of your fathers, and carry out the fill from the holy place. So we see the reforms, and he wants to get temple worship restored where it should be. In chapter 30, For a majority of the people, many of them from Ephraim and Manasseh and Issachar and Zebulun, had not cleansed themselves. 
yet they ate the Passover otherwise than as prescribed. For Hezekiah had prayed for them, saying, May the good Lord pardon everyone who sets his heart to seek God, the Lord, the God of his fathers, even though not according to the sanctuary's rules of cleanliness. And the Lord heard Hezekiah and healed the people. And that's the Old Testament way often of saying forgave their sins, because remember, Passover was a time in which the, 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 uh, the, sacrificial, the sacrificial lamb was slain for the forgiveness of sins. And so we, we see here that these, these people from the north had probably forgotten a lot of these things. Nobody had been doing any of this for years. And they really didn't know, they didn't quite get all the, 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 the rules for cleanliness taken care of, but Hezekiah asked God to, in a sense, overlook that and just accept the heart. And, and I thought, well, that's kind of a New Testament passage that, that we're going to see here in, in the Sermon on the Mount where the Lord looks on the heart and that's what matters. And, and we see here that the Lord uh, uh, let them have a pass there because they wanted to do the right thing. And he, he healed them. He, he forgave their sins. And so uh, there's an interesting uh, scriptures there. In chapter 30, verse 27, Then the priests and the Levites arose and blessed the people, and their voice was heard, and their prayer came to his holy habitation in heaven. Um, whoops, I had that twice. That, that second part shouldn't be there, excuse me. Um, but, but again, you see where I wrote, No wonder the Lord delivers them from the enemy, because they're, they're finally worshiping the Lord as, alone. And, and they've, they've re, repudiated all the idolatry. In chapter 32, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or dismayed before the king of Assyria and all the horde that is with him. For there are more... Now this is Hezekiah trying to encourage the people during this siege. For there are more with us than with him. And of course they look out and they realize that's... It literally is not true. The, the, the army was huge. They remember they couldn't even muster two thousand men to ride the horses if, if they were supplied for them. Right? Verse eight. With him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people took confidence from the words of Hezekiah and the king of Judah. And you know he said, "Look, it doesn't matter what you see out there. It's just." flesh. We have the Lord our God behind us. And that couldn't be a more important uh, thing to understand uh, for us today than that, that it's not what you can see with your eyes. It's what the Bible reveals about our flesh and about the power of God and the wisdom of God. And nothing proves saving faith like understanding that, that it doesn't matter what people say, what's going on in the flesh outside of me. Uh, all that matters is that, that I have Christ and that I'm doing his will. That God will take care of the rest. <clears throat> and so I like the people took confidence in the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. And so what does that mean? Well, that means that we should be taking confidence in what we're reading here. Again, this is written for our sake so that we can understand the truth. Now, we're not going to have time to finish this, but the rest of this chapter, as we read here, Rabshakeh is in, in plain 
let's say plain English and plain, plain Hebrew, he's in the language of the people, he's trying to get them to capitulate, to give up, to open up the doors, to to uh, not fight, right? And what's interesting is that we get a rare glimpse at how the pagan enemy would try to intimidate their uh, the people they were trying to uh, conquer. In this case, for Israel to stop trusting Yahweh and to instead fear his army. And he uses some of the same types of arguments I think Satan uses, that that's the world uses. Um, we see uh, the first thing he does is he brings up past failures. He says, you've made a pact with Egypt, and that didn't do you any good. Egypt, and there's no evidence that Egypt even tried to uh, come up and help them. And so the first thing he does is say, look, you guys have, have, have tried this, tried to withstand us, and it hasn't worked before. And it's a common tact. You failed before, so what hope do you have now? Have you, have you ever said that to yourself? And, and when I say Satan, sometimes what I mean by that is our own sinful hearts. I don't think Satan has to plant that in our heart. I don't think Satan can, to be honest with you. We don't, he doesn't need to because our own hearts. Uh, and there's other ways that the Satan can, from, from the outside, certainly uh, have that question posed to us. But have you ever thought to yourself, well, I haven't. I, I didn't do well here before, so so I'm not gonna I'm, you know I can't do anything about it. This is how I am. Uh, it's always the same. Nothing changes, and so we give up before we even start. That's kind of what he's saying here. You're just a useless sinner. You might as well give up. But always remember that all of these arguments are always first and foremost attacks upon the Lord, because the. As we just talked about the fact that Hezekiah said, they have the arm of the flesh, we have the Lord of hosts. So he said, it doesn't matter what you did in the past, it doesn't matter if you failed, you have the Holy Spirit, you have the power of God in you. Um, you sin, the Bible says, shall no longer have dominion over you. So it's an attack upon the Lord that he's not able to keep us and to, to give us the strength to do what we need to do. And so, uh, is understanding that and, and asking God to help you and not to listen to the wiles of Satan. Uh, Isaiah 31. Now, the, the verse we read out of Isaiah, remember Isaiah was a prophet during this time and much of this account is repeated in Isaiah. He gives his own version of it. And uh, so... You keep when you read some of these verses from Isaiah. Keep in mind, he's talking about the very situation we're looking at here. <clears throat> and here he says, "All stubborn children," declares the Lord, "who carry out a plan, but not mine, and who make an alliance, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin. Who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction, to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh, and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt." Therefore, let shall the protection of Pharaoh turn to your shame, and let the shelter in the shadow of Egypt to your humiliation, and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt to your humiliation. So here, uh, and maybe this is one reason why Hezekiah repents and does the right thing, is because you've got Isaiah walking around every time they're doing all this stuff and saying, uh, oh, by the way, here's how the Lord thinks about this, you know. And that's what, you should, that's, what a, that's what a good preacher does. He, 
he says, it rises above whatever's going on and says, look, this is all that matters. I don't want to hear your arguments. I don't want to hear the excuses. And of course, a good preacher also is preaching to himself, right? I don't, we don't need to hear about human wisdom. It doesn't matter what the culture says. Thus says the Lord. That's what Isaiah is doing there as well. And so, past sins are not excuses for more sin, but are lessons to be learned. Um, it's sad when the enemy knows how foolish it is to trust in something other than the Lord. Uh, here, he's he's kind of saying how foolish it is that you've trusted in the king of Egypt in that particular case. But when such thoughts would beset us, we need to learn the lessons from such things and not let the enemy not use them to uh, serve the enemy's interest, that just because we failed here, uh, we're going to fail again. And so, yeah, let's just close by looking at one more passage in uh, Isaiah 22.8. He has taken away the covering of Judah. In that day you looked to the weapons of the house of the forest, and you saw that the breaches of the city of David were many. You collected the waters of the lower pool, and you counted the house of Jerusalem, and you broke down the houses to fortify the wall. You made a reservoir between the two walls for water of the old pool, but you did not look to him who did it or see him who planned it long ago. And I, I, I Hezekiah was, I don't think there was anything wrong with what he was doing. This is talking about his reforms and his, as king, it was a duty for him to build up the walls of Jerusalem and to, fort, to make fortifications. But we also read that um, when uh, the uh, king of, uh, of Assyria comes in, that immediately he just destroys all that and he comes right up to Jerusalem. So that's kind of what Isaiah is saying here. You've done all this, but you forgot where your real strength comes from. You forgot to be dependent upon the Lord. You, perhaps you forgot to dedicate these ornaments and fortifications to the Lord and you begin to trust in them and you start to feel safe not because the Lord's your God but because you've made all these things and the Lord uh, has his ways of knocking all that out of the way and saying nope it's not going to work that way and we saw that of course that he immediately gives all the treasures from the, from the temple and from his own house to the king in an effort to get him to go away, which again doesn't work. And so, verse 13 of our text says, In the fourteenth year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Syria, comes up against all the fortified cities and took them. It didn't matter. Because that's the, that's the lesson from last week. It doesn't matter who's got the bigger army. It matters is who uh, God is going to give the victory too, and and of course that's the, and that's a good point to close on, because we are in Christ, and we will sometimes fail and compromise like Hezekiah. But at the end of the day, we can take comfort in the fact that Christ will not turn us back on Himself. We have the Holy Spirit as a seal unto the day of redemption. And we can take that to the bank and, that, and we can trust in that. That I am his child. He loves me. He's, he's given his son for me. And uh, he will not abandon me. And so even when we do fail, we can ask him for forgiveness and we can get things right and we can 
You don't have to worry about where he fell before. Just worry about the future and doing what's right for him. And so you, you see how all this, this kind of shows the Christian life kind of in an outward physical way, but we see how this all applies to us in our, in our day as well. Let's just stop there. Any, Lord, we, we just thank you for this uh, account, and Lord, there's just so many things in there that we where we see ourselves and we see the truth of the gospel and the power of God and uh, we learn the lessons of compromise and, and what happens and uh, what pleases you and what does not. And so we just pray that you might help us to be able to, as we meditate, as we think about the word of God and we apply it to our lives, we see so often uh, these things reflect our own attitude. We ask that you might make us strong uh, in the Lord, bring conviction upon our lack of faith sometimes and help us, Lord, to encourage one another and to be a good testimony to the lost, and we pray that you might open up our hearts and minds to receive your truth this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.